This is a recording of a live Resolution Foundation event. We hope you find it some combination of interesting or entertaining. To read the research and access the event slides referenced in this episode, please visit the events section of our website. Uh, good afternoon, everybody. Welcome to this Resolution Foundation event. My name is Torsten Bell. I'm the chief executive of the uh, Foundation. Now, one of the good things for those of us in my line of work is that talking about the labour market is fashionable. Yeah, people like that. There's a lot of that in public policy debates. Recently, labour market inactivity has been top of the um, list. But then if you look a bit further back, we've also had labour market regulation being medium fashionable. I don't want to overdo it, but like, if you're a Labour Party, you like to talk about having some more labour market regulation. And in different phases of life, the Conservative Party has thought that getting rid of some labour market regulation, particularly if it came from Brussels, would be our route to a faster growing economy. So politics talks about labour market regulation quite a lot, even if it doesn't always do um, lots. But labour market enforcement is not fashionable. Now, partly that's maybe because you can't legislate it into being. I mean, you can pass legislation to do with it, but it doesn't make it happen, right? Uh, but labour market enforcement may not be fashionable, but is very important because it's the thing that turns rights from rhetoric into a reality. The, um, uh, so we're going to ignore the fashion police, which we do at the Resolution Foundation every day when we get dressed, but we also ignore them when it comes to public policy um, advice. And we're going to spend a full afternoon talking about labour market enforcement about how to turn those rights into a reality or how you might if you were a politician that decides to take our fashion advice over the coming uh, years. The, um, thank you all for your commitment to sticking to that. The, um, I'll come to the reward you get in a second, but thank you for your commitment to coming to do that. I should say before we get started, thank you to the team for their commitment in making that happen. This is a four-year project. It's not just a short-term thing. I think, I think I can even show you the four years worth of Papers, here we go, lots of research papers, but they've been turned into a final report for this project today, which you've all got hard copies of. It's quite long, but you're committed people, so you can get through every single uh, page of that. And I should say particular thank you to Hannah Slaughter, who's a senior economist at the foundation, and to Lindsay Judge, a research director who's led the project. Between them, they've made it happen with contributions from lots of other members of the team over the course of those uh, four years. But this is about the final report. It's about the diagnosis of the challenges the country faces when it comes to labour market enforcement, and then we're going to get on to the solutions in dealing with it. My other thanks are to Unbound Philanthropy for supporting that project over the four years. They also have had staying power, which is good to see and much appreciated, but also lots of engagement from a huge range of people, from businesses, from trade unions, third sector organisations, academics, and actually the enforcement bodies themselves, which, as we're going to come on to, there are a lot of. So thank you to everybody that worked in those and has contributed um, to the project, and particularly to the Office for the Director of Labour Market Enforcement who've been heavily involved and added lots of value over the course of those um, five, four years. So that is what we are talking about, just in terms of what we're going to do, because it's important to know what's coming in life. The, um, uh, so we're going to first of all do a session on the problem. This is the panel I'm going to introduce in a second on the problem. They are not the problem, but they're going to tell you about the problem, that the answer to understanding the problem. Then we're having refreshments. That means tea and coffee. Okay, I know you need to know what's coming. That's the reward you get for coming in person. Online, you can make your own tea and coffee. I've got total faith in your ability to do that. Then we're going to talk about the solution in the second panel. What's our recommendation for change? What do other people think should be 
done. You don't get a reward after that one. The, uh, then you're going to hear from Angela Rayner, the deputy leader of the Labour Party, about what a Labour government might do in this space. The, um, after that, you do get a... Here you get networking drinks. I don't know how different those are to normal drinks. But anyway, that means alcoholic drinks. But you get that afterwards only if you manage to last the three hours. Because life is about effort and reward in that order. Okay? So that is the plan today. As I say, the first session we're going to kick off in a second um, with Hannah Slaughter giving us a presentation of the problem part of the report. Then, and then you've got a great panel. You're first of all going to hear from Kate Roberts, who's head of policy at Flex, which is a great organisation that stands for the focus on labour market exploitation, but do a huge amount of work, particularly at the hard end of the labour market enforcement agenda, which often doesn't get a lot of attention. Then you're going to hear from Kate Shoesmith, who's the deputy CEO of the Recruitment and Employment Confederation. And one of the things we're going to be drawing out across the course of this morning is that the old debate, which is businesses saying stop any enforcement, we count it as just having more regulation and unions and employer rep worker representatives saying can we have more of it isn't the world as it stands today. There's a bigger change in that debate. And then you're going to hear from Professor Alan Begg from Old Square Chambers who is a specialist in labour and employment law and can tell us a bit about what actually happens when some of this stuff turns into uh, reality when people are actually bringing cases and the rest. Now as always you can ask uh, questions on Slido, it's hashtag workers rights, select the right session and show some self-control. Questions in the first session are about the problem. If you already know the answer, you have to wait to the second session. If you have a question for Angela, she's not here. Save it for the third session. Everyone know what their job is? Hashtag workers' rights. Right, Hannah, kick us off. You can clap her now. So yes, my presentation is going to be the more depressing of the day because it is just about what is wrong with labour market enforcement, but rest assured we will get on to how to fix it um, in the second session of the day. Um, so first of all, what is the actual kind of scale and nature of the problem that we're dealing with? Um, so in the report, we, talk, uh, we kind of give a much more um, kind of full um, accounting of how much um, of this issue there is, of breaches of workers' rights. But here I'm just going to pick out two um, charts uh, to show you. So I'm going to add some more bars onto this in a minute. But um, if you look on the left-hand side of this chart, this is the share of workers who report they have no paid holiday entitlement, despite that being um, a right from day one. Um, and that's 3% uh, um, across the whole um, population of employees, and that's equivalent to about 900,000 people. So that's you know quite quite substantive. And then on the right-hand side, that's looking at the share of workers who say that they don't get um, a pay slip, so they can't check that they're getting the right, you know, the right pay for the right number of hours. Um, and that's <clears throat> uh, that's about 7%, so about 1.8 million people. So both of these kind of far too high they are you know this is a big deal and it's obviously a big deal for workers in terms of their living standards we estimate in the report that the the holiday pay example that could be costing workers around two billion pounds a year kind of across um, all of them who say they don't get any paid holiday um, but it's also a problem for businesses because if uh, those businesses that are doing the right thing are being undercut by competitors who are able to do so because they're not giving workers the rights that they are owed that's a problem for compliant businesses as well. So big problem. But this is just looking across the kind of population of, of employees as a whole. And when we dig down into the groups of workers that are most affected, there are some consistent patterns uh, there too. So these sets of bars are looking at a few selected uh, demographic characteristics where our research has brought out that they are uh, most um, affected. So the first set of dark blue bars there is looking at um, 
the youngest workers, those aged under 25, and the oldest workers, those uh, aged over 65. Um, and among both of those groups, they are more likely than the average to report that they don't have uh, any paid holiday entitlement or um, not getting a pay slip. Um, among uh, recent migrants, um, so those in the past who've come to the UK in the past five years, um, again among um, when um, they are more likely than average to report zero paid holiday entitlement. But we also think that that's an underestimate because the official surveys that we use to kind of do this analysis are not very good at picking up um, those. Um, those groups of workers. And then the final kind of set of bars are um, a few of the ethnic uh, groups that um, are more likely to report these violations. Um, so particularly uh, those from the Bangladeshi and Pakistani ethnic groups, um, as well as those from uh, mixed and multiple ethnic groups. So big inequalities here, um, kind of another reason that we should care about this. Um, and then just to kind of complete the chart, um, looking at a few uh, job characteristics and unsurprisingly there are, there are kind of pockets of uh, the labour market where um, these um, violations are particularly prevalent. So here just picking out a few examples. Um, so the red bars um, uh, on the left hand side we've got zero hours contracts at the top um, and uh, almost 30% of, of people on zero hours contract report not getting any paid holiday. Um, and then again um, on both of those, um, those on 10 temporary contracts are, are more likely than average to, um, to report uh, not getting these kind of really quite basic labour market rights. Um, the orange bars are just picking out a couple of the sectors um, where these um, issues are most prevalent, so agriculture and hospitality are shown here, that's just to name a couple. Um, and then those working for the very smallest employers um, are also more likely to report uh, no paid holiday or not getting a pay slip. You know, that might be because their employer um, struggles more to kind of know what, what they need to do. Um, it might be ch more challenging for them, but, you know, that's obviously a problem um, for the workers themselves. Um, and these are just two examples. And we could we could draw a version of this chart for minimum wage underpayment, auto enrolment into a pension scheme, workplace discrimination. And we kind of consistently find that it's the same groups of workers who are, who are really um, at the sharp end um, of this. Um, obviously, you know, policymakers know that this is a problem and they are doing something about it. Uh, we have lots of enforcement bodies um, who um, are responsible for different parts of, um, of the law. So this uh, graphic, it's not really a chart, um, is um, showing the kind of a few um, the different um, enforcement bodies um, that are the main ones enforcing workers' rights. So the red ones are enforcement bodies uh, from the Employment Agency Standards Inspectorate, the Minimum Wage Unit that's part of HMRC, um, Health and Safety Executive, as well as local authorities. And I won't kind of read them all out, but they are all in the report. Um, and then the blue boxes on top are just showing that the kind of the range of government departments that those span. Um, and, and, you know, um, I think the point we're making here is that it's it's quite a fragmented system and it's worth saying as well that this is this is very different to some other countries um so as part of the report we um did uh, we drew on case studies from uh, five countries uh, australia ireland france the netherlands and norway that actually have a single enforcement body um that brings together most of the enforcement um, the enforcement for most of, of the rights uh, into one organisation. Um, and, you know, there's arguably no right way to kind of do, um, to, to 
set up the institutional framework, but it's clear that kind of having a kind of single or at least a lead body has a lot of benefits in terms of workers knowing where to go um, if they need to raise a complaint um, and in terms of information sharing. Um, so, it's, you know, it's obviously really difficult, understandably, to share, you know, sensitive data across different government departments. But, you know, that, that, that can be a problem in terms of knowing what's going on elsewhere, because we know that the firms that are non-compliant in one area are likely to be non-compliant in another area, too. So that's that's kind of one problem with the current system. And then just in terms of kind of uh, resourcing and, you know, what what enforcement bodies are actually able to to do. Uh, this chart is showing um, the uh, level of budget. Uh, so on the on the right hand side, the, the kind of the bars, the stacked bars are showing the overall amount. But then on the right hand side uh, with those that kind of dotted line is showing the spend per worker. And we can kind of see uh, kind of uh, firstly that over the course of the, the kind of early 2010s, obviously with austerity and things like that, um, it's um, the resourcing available to enforcement bodies fell in real terms and things have flattened out since. Um, uh, but it's still it's still relatively low. So that last data point there, 2022, um, shows that there was just £10.50 uh, per worker spent on um, enforcement um, in that year across all the different um, labour market enforcement bodies. Obviously, the, well, the, the kind of the big one is uh, the health and safety executive, but, the, but there are um, all of them um, represented here. And that's kind of despite some big you know, some big uh, movements in terms of um, the government introducing, you know, the Director of Labour Market Enforcement, um, which is kind of setting a strategic direction um, for Labour Market and kind of saying, you know, it's, it's kind of committed to further improvements in, in workers' rights. They at one point uh, said that they were going to introduce our own single enforcement body, but that hasn't happened. Um, but the kind of statements that have been made haven't been matched by kind of increases in the overall budget. That's not to say there haven't been some improvements in individual agencies' budgets. Um, there are quite a few of the smaller bars that are quite difficult to see on this chart, but in the report we have um, time series of um, the budgets for the minimum wage underpayment unit in HMRC and the employment agency standards inspectorate, both of which have risen and risen relative to the kind of the the number of workers or the number of agencies. Um, so you know there have been pockets of improvement, but you know, this is the big picture. There's not really been any movement, um, despite kind of government uh, saying that it wants to take this more seriously in in uh, so at some points in the recent years. Um, what happens when uh, employment enforcement agencies do find non-compliance? Um, so you know, it's obviously hard for them to do uh, to do that in the first place, given the, the kind of lack of resourcing. And we'll talk more about that a bit later as well. Um, but often um, when enforcement agencies do find non-compliance, firms are given the benefit of the doubt and not actually required to pay a fine on top of kind of the arrears owed. So this chart is showing, um, taking the example of HMRC minimum wage underpayment um, and just showing that so the, the kind of solid blue bars are um, the amount of arrears where the employer did have to pay a fine. Um, on top of paying back the arrears, and, but then that hollow uh, kind of white bar with the blue border is the, the kind of the additional um, arrears where firms were allowed to self-correct. They, they did have to pay back the arrears to the worker, but they didn't face a kind of financial penalty for doing so. Um, and, you know, often enforcement bodies might uh, be a bit more lenient because they think, you know, firms might not have understood the rules, but that 
means that there's kind of uh, very little incentive for uh, for employers to, to get things right the first time. And, and again, later in uh, this afternoon, we'll come on to the actual levels of the fine once they are imposed. But suffice it to say that they are not high enough um, for um, to deter non-compliance. So broadly speaking, um, there's been um, quite... Um, well, the, the, the system that's that's kind of set up through the state to enforce workers' uh, rights is not very well equipped to kind of uh, face the scale of the challenge that we showed right at the beginning. So what does that leave workers to do? They basically have to enforce their own rights, um, and the main way of doing that is through an employment tribunal. Uh, but the problem with that, um, as this chart shows, um, is that uh, not all workers uh, are able to do so. Um, so the the kind of this chart is showing you um, the number of people who took their case to an employment tribunal per ten thousand employees in in that um, in the relevant category, and the what the examples I picked out here are some of the uh, groups who at the very beginning of the presentation I showed were were more likely to than average to report that they'd experienced. Um, uh, these violations of workers' rights. Um, and so you'll remember that the uh, Pakistani and Bangladeshi ethnic groups um, were more likely than average um, to uh, report not getting paid holiday or um, a pay slip. Um, but here we can see that the kind of overarching Asian ethnic group, which is unfortunately the, uh, the most granular we can get with this data, but there's basically no difference between the rate at which that ethnic group takes employment tribunal cases compared to the white ethnic group uh, where violations are much lower. Um, and then again, we can see in the green bars that the that those from the smallest employers who are most likely to experience um, a whole host of violations are less likely than those in the largest employers um, to be able to uh, to, to take a case um, and there are lots of reasons for that is you know partly about the kind of the costs even though employment tribunal fees are no longer enforced there's still kind of wider legal costs but also it's obviously you know stress um, the kind of the non-financial costs of taking a case as well as the kind of the rewards that are on offer given that awards are often linked to previous earnings or to earnings with the employer that you know people on people on lower incomes for example are less likely to be able to uh, to, to have kind of much to gain from going through the system. It's a bit more of a complex picture when it comes to age. So the youngest workers and the oldest workers are both more likely to um, experience violations, but um, the oldest uh, workers are more likely than average to take a case, uh, kind of reflecting the um, increased likelihood of violations, but that's not the case among the youngest workers who are less likely than average. So basically those who are most in need of taking, of, of kind of redress, are less able to take a case uh, to an employment tribunal in lots of ways. So, to summarise that fairly depressing uh, presentation, um, we don't talk much about enforcement, but it really matters because you know it doesn't matter how much progress we make on things like increasing the minimum wage and improving workers' rights if employers uh, or a small group of employers don't play by the rules. Uh, that's you know that's harming workers' living standards, but it's also harming compliant businesses because they're being undercut by uh, kind of the rogue firms. Um, the state enforcement system is fragmented and underfunded, broadly speaking. There's been recent improvements, but uh, big picture is still um, th that it's ill-equipped to deal with the problem. Uh, and then finally, we can't leave it to individuals to enforce their own rights through an employment tribunal, broadly speaking, because those who are most likely to need redress are not able to get it. Very good. Thank you for getting us down, Hannah. Um, so hopefully lots of food for thought in there on 
the status quo, which isn't okay, is the general gist of that, either because you've got like direct issues where people aren't getting the cash they're entitled to via holidays or minimum wages, or with people suffering really difficult situations like with discrimination who aren't don't have a viable route to redress for that unless they're lucky enough to have um, the resources or the resilience to be able to go through lengthy, painful processes. So that's the that's the it's not okay um, uh, bit of the situation. So let's hear other people's takes on that. So Kate Roberts, there's multiple Kates, but you can all do this. You can, you can do this, so Kate. Um, thank you. Um, so yes, um, my name is Kate Roberts and I work at an organisation called Focus on Labour Exploitation. And if I can just explain, we're an anti-trafficking organisation, but we very much recognise that exploitation takes place on a spectrum and that it really makes no sense to wait until someone's treatment reaches the threshold of slavery or trafficking far better to intervene early on, have mechanisms whereby people can raise complaints and more important, have proactive labour market enforcement. And just to say very briefly, um, I agree wholeheartedly with, this, with the premise that, that labour market enforcement is absolutely vital and particularly so for workers who are more, most at risk of exploitation. I, I know that's an obvious thing to say, but just to just to explain, we talk about vulnerable workers quite often, but you know, vulnerability in a workforce is created. And you know, that, that may be because people have been exploited previously, so they're in high levels of debt, um, you know, they, they carry trauma, they have expectations of a workplace. Um, it may be because they, um, they are on a very low wage, um, and so they, um, you know, they, they really have no room to risk their job and, and take forward a claim because they need those earnings every day. Um, and it, in, so it's about you know, previous abuse, it's about the structure of their job. If they're in a very insecure job, less likely. And the, the point that we at Flex focus on more is again, immigration statuses or a lack of immigration status can obviously create vulnerability. And at the moment, we're doing quite a lot of work on restricted short-term visa regimes where there's 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 less option due to the structure of your visa you may be tied to an employer um, or a sponsor you have no recourse to public funds um, so it's very hard in practice to actually raise a complaint particularly um, I'll talk more more about the specific visas but particularly if you're you're dependent on your employer for your work but also your accommodation your visa uh, these multiple dependencies um, at risk of just agreeing with everything Alice says, um, you know, we, it, it's clear that you, at present UK labour market enforcement isn't effective at, at protecting workers' rights. Completely, it's, it's under-resourced. It's, it's, it tends to link to the being under-resourced. It's reactive, it's, in, it's intelligence-led. But for the reasons I very briefly said, many workers are not going to raise intelligence, particularly because we often hear that Intelligence can't be anecdotal, it has to be very specific, it has to be someone really coming forward and risking a lot to speak out. Um, we, you know, you've spoken about different labour market enforcement agencies. Um, you know, we know the GLA strategy does prioritise the high-risk sectors, but despite this, there is, there is in reality limited enforcement operations which are targeted at high-risk sectors. Um, Coupled with this, there's no secure reporting pathways. And what I mean by that is uh, there's, there's no pathways whereby 
um, there is a very clear guarantee that labor market enforcement agencies are not going to be sharing um, personal data without consent with immigration enforcement. So that um, obviously discourages individuals coming forward, not necessarily because they're undocumented, but maybe because their visa, they're, they're unsure of the terms of their visa, um, they, they're not sure about their colleagues in the work sector, they basically don't want immigration com enforcement coming around. Um, and you've already spoken Hannah, about the fragmentation of, of, um, of the labor market enforcement system, but this can also, as well as confusion as to where workers go, um, I think it can, well, it can <laughs> lead to gaps in enforcement as well. Whose remit does this, does this fall under? Is this really our responsibility? So even where reports are made, they can just not be actioned. Um, I didn't, I'm not aware of time. You're okay. Okay. I'll, um, I'll start like moving with your... Like, <laughs> um, um, so, I, I mean, a lot of the points I'll make today um, have been covered in, well, a, a research report we produced in 2017, Risky Business, which I, I can share if that's helpful. But, um, yeah, of particular concern, I, I mentioned briefly the temporary migration programmes. Um, in the moment, the UK has two short-term visas, work visas, the seasonal worker visa and the overseas domestic worker visa. The seasonal work visa is for agriculture, and the overseas domestic worker visa is um, workers who come who come to the UK to work in private households. Both are both have a duration of six months. Both are non-renewable. Um, these are both in sectors that are considered to be high risk, and obviously the the risks that 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 would be uh, that would be created for any worker in the sector are compounded by the visas being so short term. The workers coming and there being issues of language, um, not having a support network. How do you get information about your rights? How do you know what your rights are in the UK? How can you trust that source of information? What practical access to support do you have? Domestic workers are usually living in. Agricultural seasonal workers are living on the farms. So if you raise a complaint, you are literally living in your employer's accommodation. Are you going to become destitute and homeless because you have no recourse to public funds? Um, so, I mean, we already heard today about how you have these, you have um, labor market regulation, but without enforcement, the rights really don't exist in practice. And you see these two tiers of um, a worker, really, workers who are here, but really can't access labor law. Um, coupled with this, we do see a more, um, I mean, this isn't exactly benign, but it's maybe not so intentional <laughs> exploitation. But then you can see a situation where immigration status becomes is, is used as a coercion tool. Um, and I mentioned the lack of uh, secure reporting pathways. I'm sure everyone in this room is aware of the illegal migration bill that's making its way through uh, for Parliament at the moment. And this will remove um, the, it will remove really. Uh, access to people for to access for large groups of people depending on how they entered the UK to any kind of asylum claim or similar being processed um, including actually for victims of slavery um, including people who've been identified by the UK government as a victim of slavery so with a lack of security reporting pathways you're really going to create um, you're creating a cohort of people who are going to be exploited because they're not going to go forward to the authorities and this will be used as a threat. Um, we already see 
linked to the secure reporting. Many labour market enforcement agencies already do joint inspections with um, immigration. It's really unclear why this would be beneficial. And, and as I said, it, it, it's actually um, the opposite to being beneficial. It, it means workers are very nervous to speak out. Um, just very briefly, I also wanted to just talk about um, what labour market enforcement means for workers. Again, if you want workers to well, ideally, we have labour market enforcement, so it's proactive, um, and and workers have uh, their access to labour law enforced without having to sort of put their neck on the line. But if you do want workers to speak out and give evidence, you need to have remediation. It needs to actually work for the workers, so they don't end up destitute and, and without any compensation. I mean, Hannah, you talked about how um, how how companies aren't you know fined; they just aren't asked to pay what they own, but often. Too often we just see workers not actually getting any remediation at all. Um, and that can be for a combination of reasons. With undocumented workers, we all know about the legal, illegal working offence. Uh, Hannah talked about access to employment tribunals, you know, cuts. Again, everyone here will know about the decimation of legal aid um, and the difficulties in accessing legal advice, but then you need an employment law aspect, um, an employment law specialist or expert who will also understand immigration law. So there's a, a real lack of expertise in that particular intersection. Um, and so all too often, workers who do speak out, it, it really doesn't work out well for them, particularly, I will wrap up, but short-term visas, if you're here for six months, how can you begin to take a claim in practice? Our processes are not that fast, all the other difficulties aside. So workers are just going to get their heads down and say, you know what, I just actually, I've incurred a lot of debt to migrate here. I'm just going to earn what I can. And then we see a driving down in conditions for everyone. I'm aware I'm running over time. I won't stop making recommendations. No recommendations, that's <laughs> session two. Right, very good, thank you very much, Kate. Um, we need more enforcement, but we also need more Kates. So, Kate. Yeah, I agree with this. I, I think we are in danger of uh, entirely agreeing. Try hard. <laughs> Try hard not to. So, um, uh, so uh, as you said, I'm uh, Kate from the Recruitment and Employment Confederation. I, I think three, three things uh, from, from my side. The first is the vast majority of businesses, they want to do the right thing. The second is, I think there's a clear distinction between those that are willfully and maliciously ignoring the regulations out there, and that's where enforcement has to focus, versus those that make unintentional mistakes, and that's something that's really important. Um, and the third is, we, we need to help those good guys out. Um, we're really trying. So, so in terms of us uh, thinking about why, why, do I, why do I think employers want to do the right thing? I'm, I'm part of a membership organisation. We have over 3,000 companies in membership. We set a barrier for them to enter. So they sign up to our Code of Professional Practices recruitment agencies, which goes above and beyond uh, the legislation. It thinks about the ethics of recruiting. We make them take an exam. We make them retake a test every couple of years to stay in membership. And if they won't do it, or if there's a complaint against them, we kick them out. And the rest of our members cheer because they really, really want to differentiate and ensure that there is that standard that matters to them. Um, a big part of our offering is we run a legal helpline. We get about 10,000 calls to that helpline every year. It was spiked during the pandemic, as you would expect. They're asking for very clear instructions. And this comes on to the, the second point around um, that 
willful and malicious versus the unintentional. So they're phoning our employment legal experts because they understand the legislation per se, they, they look at all of the model documents and, uh, and everything that's out there, and then the comfort comes from talking to somebody who is an employment lawyer, um, who has seen what's happened in case law, um, seen how things have been interpreted and how it's changed over time. And it's really hard to keep up and understand it. So, so if I take that unintentional, um, I think national minimum wage enforcement and thinking about naming and shaming, it's done a, it's done a good job. If I'm to disagree with anything in the report... What? <laughs> I, uh, I think that that does sting and that, and that being on that named list, it remains a sting in the tail for a very long time for the companies that um, I have spoken to about this at length, I will say, um, because you can look at that list and you can very clearly identify between those that have made, um, I, I will call it a mistake. When you work it out across the number of uh, workers that's on that list uh, and, uh, and the full amount that's underpayment of national minimum wage, it works out as pence per worker. It's still not good. It's not right. It's never, ever right. But they've made a mistake and it's often around holiday pay calculation versus when you look at a list and there's several hundred pounds, even thousands of pounds per worker. You can tell who is trying to do this maliciously, who is not applying the rules, and who's got it wrong. And on holiday pay, we have to apply this calculation that we also didn't think we had to apply for the last six months because of case law, where you apply 12.07% to figure out your holiday pay. It's not easy, it's not, um, it's not, it's not something that comes naturally to any of us who aren't mathematical geniuses. Um, we had a holiday pay calculator on our website. We had to take it down in response to case law because of the Supreme Court judgments where they made the particular ruling. We had to then go through a whole process where we were talking to the variety of government agencies that you've outlined there who are awesome and doing such a good job but desperately need more resource uh, to try and figure out what do we do in its stead because this has been part of our um, tried and tested formula it's the best we have in a bad situation really so so there are things there that we're not helping ourselves necessarily and and for us trying to keep up with how things are changing some of it we know changes and we need to be at the forefront of that and actually whether it's the right place for the regulators to be at the forefront of that or whether the policymakers have to be thinking a step ahead i think it's entirely right that you're thinking about that partnership working if i think about our colleagues in ireland because you specifically referenced them uh, what happens with my equivalent organization in ireland is they work with the garda directly they they are supplying part of the solution there around enforcement so there are um, there are mechanisms and ways of doing this that are much, much better. I completely and utterly agree. So we, so we can see that there is that need to distinguish between what is going on uh, for those that are absolutely ignoring the rules, and we need to focus that enforcement there, versus those that aren't too sure of the territory and need more help and support around that. Um, and, and that's where helping the good, my last thing, is, is really, really important to us. So I've mentioned that there are examples. We can see that some of those, uh, those case studies matter. I've mentioned how it's important that we keep up with what's going on. But some of this doesn't change massively quickly. So if you look at the labour supply chain, 
there has been a situation where there are a multiple and a multitude of partners working in that. Um, and you specifically reference agency workers, and we have agency worker regulations. What we don't have is regulations that apply across the board. Um, so, so in our particular niche of a sector, there are payroll providers, um, and because they're not defined by legislation, they're not included in the scope of the inspection and the enforcement regime. That's not good enough. It's just not good enough. So we need, so we need that to be there. We need to, when new accountancy solutions appear, they have to be, uh, they have to be brought into scope. Whether that's an umbrella organisation or anything else, you need to be thinking about how does it all line up in terms of uh, tax and employment. So, in my really basic brain, I can understand that there's three employment statuses per se. Um, but unfortunately, in tax, there's no such thing. It's either you're employed or self-employed. Suddenly, you've got a huge disconnect there. This causes us no amount of angst trying to, to figure this out. And here are we, all of us, saying to, uh, to government and all parties that we want to have better enforcement. That means to us that something really has to change. And it needs to change quite quickly because everything we're seeing out there, um, the gig economy isn't new. It's entirely separate from agency worker regulations. So, so why is that? Um, and we've got technology changing all the time. We all want to use it. We all want to be um, making sure that we're up to date with the latest technology. But if that's changing how we're working, how we're employed, how we understand our rights, surely we've got to be using some of that to, to good effect as well. So there's got to be a much more focus on how we're sharing that information um, and getting into the nuances without throwing the baby out with the bathwater because the one thing we desperately do not need is we don't need to have a retained EU law bill that looks about how we get rid of everything by this Christmas. That's really not going to help any of us. Right, thanks for bringing that up. Thank you. Um, and because you did a good thing and disagreed with us, the, um, uh, we'll come back to naming and shaming the, um, uh, in a second. Adam, last word to you. Uh, thank you. Uh, is, that, is that on? You're on, you're on. Right, excellent. Ah, there it is. I can hear myself now, which is a very disconcerting feeling. Uh, and I regret to say I'm not a Kate, uh, I'm an Alan. So I, uh, not, Mind you, neither, neither are you. Uh, and you're not a Kate either, so actually, that's fine. You can be if you want. Um, I'll stick with Alan today, thank you. Uh, and um, I, I must say, um, uh, I, I do agree with the report, and I, and I think the authors are really to be commended. So I think it's a, I read it on the train on the way down from Bristol this morning. I think it's an outstanding piece of work. I think it should be a game changer, actually. Uh, and if it isn't a game changer, that isn't a reflection on the report. That is a reflection on the state of our politics. And I think we should keep that in mind when we see what happens to this report. Uh, and I should also uh, express my gratitude to the Resolution Foundation not to be uh, at a Future of Work event. Um, I feel like I'm at those all the time. Uh, and um, what this is, is a very helpful reminder that there is a presence of work uh, that needs to be addressed urgently. And I think uh, we're too fond of thinking about the future uh, and we take our eyes off the present. And when we take our eyes off the present, uh, what happens is we get a, a whole host uh, of um, seriously exploited uh, workers in the labour market. Um, and I think one thing that really uh, strikes me about the data in this report is the profoundly inegalitarian burden 
of non-enforcement. So if we think about the, the distribution of legal enforcement as a public good, what this report really exposes, uh, and I think this is very, very sad uh, uh, to witness, is how that good uh, is distributed in the most inegalitarian way possible. So the people in the labour market carrying the most significant burden of non-enforcement are in fact the most vulnerable and disadvantaged in the labour market. And I've been saying this for a long time, but you know, I, I'm sick of hearing about good work and good work policies. I think what we really need first is, is, a, is a bad work plan. Uh, and I, I, I'm, I, I'm not saying that flippantly. Um, I'm saying that because I think if we're, you know, legal enforcement uh, and legal time and legal energy is a very scarce resource. And when you have the inegalitarian situation that's been identified in this report, there is really a very compelling political case to start at the bottom of the labour market and begin there. And let's invest our energy in thinking about enforcement, in how to eradicate bad work. And then I'll be interested in having a conversation with a politician about a good work plan. And it's not attractive politically to talk about bad work. Politicians like to talk about good work because good work feels good, uh, it lifts us. But actually, um, that's a form of political dereliction. And the one thing, um, you know, we talked about whether employers are culpable or innocent, and I'm sure most employers do want to do the right thing, but it's important not to lose sight of the fact that the real culpability that's exposed in this report is political culpability. None of this comes as any surprise to anybody who has any involvement in labour market enforcement. Yet successive governments have looked at this situation and have done very little. I was involved last year with the P&O ferry scandal. Uh, I appeared at a select committee uh, in the aftermath of that. And I can tell you what happened when you had a large employer that basically flagrantly broke the law, uh, held its hands up, um, uh, said that um, it, it, it had made a calculated and deliberate decision to do that, what's happened? Absolutely nothing. And in fact, P&O today reported that it had turned the corner, it was in healthy profits. Uh, the CEO, Peter Hebblethwaite, is still uh, doing his job, earning lots of money at P&O. Uh, and that happened in full political view of the current government. And that's the real problem, I think, with enforcement. Have I got a minute or two? Yeah, a minute, go on. So um, you've identified the centrality of um, individual enforcement as being a real difficulty. And I think that's absolutely right. So the question is, why is that? I think essentially this is modelled on a kind of private law model of rights. So Hannah, let's imagine that you drop uh, a, a very heavy copy of Harvey on industrial relations on my foot negligently. You will break my toe because it's a big tome. Now in private law, um, you've breached a duty to me and I'm a right holder and there's a correlative relationship between the two of us. That's called a tort for those who aren't lawyers in the audience. Now, um, 
nobody but me has standing to enforce that right. That's my right. I decide what to do with it. There isn't a torts agency sponsored by the government that takes a view on whether or not I should enforce that right against Hannah. That's up to me. That's my autonomous decision. Finally, if I do sue Hannah in private law, the remedy is compensatory. I'm compensated for the loss that arises out of my wrong, uh, Hannah's wrong. Here is the deep philosophical problem that underlies the enforcement difficulty. Our statutory employment rights are modelled on that basic private law structure. And what this report brings out is that these rights are public rights. There is a public good in their enforcement. Uh, there is a public good in a decent labour market where rights are enforceable for the most vulnerable and disadvantaged. So each of those components of the private law model has to be interrogated and reformed so that we have a model of public enforcement that fits the public nature of the rights. And that's the real value of this report. It's very important and for what it's worth, I really commend it to uh, uh, whoever's listening and this deserves to have a real impact. Thanks for listening. Very good, thank you very much indeed. You said nice things at the end, so Hannah's going to forgive you for the threat to sue. Um, <laughs> yeah, sorry, and other things that like crept there. in there, but there'll be no books. There's no books to be dropped. It's a very light report. <laughs> no one should engage in any suing with the Resolution Foundation. Uh, right, now, the, um, okay, we've got about 15 minutes. As I said to all of you before, go on to Slido, it's hashtag um, workers' rights. But to kick us off on there, to encourage you to look at it up, we're going to start with a poll which is Hannah's going to appear on the slide screen behind me for those of you in the room and is going to appear online for those of you not, which Hannah is going to talk you through. First of all, hopefully, oh God, can we make the chart bigger? Because even my eyes, which are fairly good, can't read that. Or was I going to tell you what it says? Can we make the chart bigger? It's, oh, it's bigger for you in the room. Oh, I see. It's on the PowerPoint. Right. Okay, let's come out of that and let's do a big version of it because no one's eyes are that good and I don't want them suing us for straining your eyeballs. <laughs> Uh, so drop that a second, and then we're going to come back, it turns out. Here we go. Right, can we bring the slides up? Here we go. Now flick through to the... Right, you can read that, everyone. Okay, so here's the exam question. This is about how many inspectors, labour market inspectors in general, right? So people doing any kind of labour market inspection there are in different countries per 10,000 workers. The ILO benchmark there is you should have one per 10,000. So the, the exam question is, is the United Kingdom number one, number two, Number three, number four, or number five. Hannah, which countries should we be excited about on this list? The US <laughs> well, doesn't I ask give the, the answer away yet. Don't give the answer. Okay. Tell us about the other countries. <laughs> sure. So, well, I mean, one of the things that you can take away from that chart is that actually, as you know, globally across uh, the world, not that many countries are uh, doing uh, particularly well. Not not that many of them uh, meet the benchmark uh, that the ILO has set, but um, some countries are, are getting quite close. Um, and the Americans don't even try. No, the Americans don't even try. Um, I mean, I think you can kind of see to some extent that this mirrors kind of wider labour market policies. Um, so countries like Norway is up at the top, um, and, and we know that there's kind of... Um, uh, it was quite a different labour market policy to some of the more kind of Anglo-Saxon countries down at the bottom. Um, so there's obviously a correlation there. I don't know if that's giving too much of a hint. Um, 
I've given one away. Anyway, right, okay, look, let's keep going because we've got to finish in. Um, so let, now we'll go back to the polls. Everyone remember what number you're voting for due to our like impossible to read charts. One, two, three, four, five. Don't vote six because, you know, life is constrained. Right, here you go. Have a go voting now. The, um, which one are you going for? People are starting to vote. Okay, all right. We're going to give you five minutes to do that. Does anyone want to hazard a guess that's on the panel? Without, if you've already read the report and looked at the chart, keep stum. Anyone else? Your memory is pretty good, though. You can remember that. What do you reckon, Kate? I, I think we were at four, weren't we? You're four. You're voting for four. Other Kate? I think I'm going to vote for five. Oh, five. Okay. You reckon we're below Ireland. Very good. Okay. Let's bring up the results of the poll and see what you all came for and how educated people are. I mean, you're pretty depressive looking at these coming up. Yeah. Um, oh, God, you can't actually see it, right? So 50% of you have voted for option five. That's the worst. The world isn't as bad as you think, people. <laughs> We're only four, actually. 43% of you are right. All of you that voted for options one, two, and three, well, none of you voted for one and two because you're not idiots. Okay, so three people voted for option three, 7%, you're wrong. It is four, I think, is the answer. Yes? Yeah, that's right. And I mean, it's worth saying um, this is quite an important measure of kind of how well resourced our system is compared to, to other countries. I mean, you know, having inspectors isn't kind of the only thing that matters. You know, we can do um, clever things with data and, and risk modelling and such like. But um, as we'll come on to talk about in the, in the next session, um, kind of having uh, boots on the ground, so to speak, is a really important way of picking up um, load market violations in the first place. And it's only if we actually pick them up that we can address them. Very good. Right. Okay. Let's go through a few subjects. Right. So let's first of all do some of the bits where people might not agree. So I think everyone probably is going to think this isn't great, right? We've got two, we've got two billion pounds a year being lost in lost holiday pay. We've got you know, up to a third of people reporting they're underpaid on the minimum wage, right? These are big numbers uh, and they're material. So, but on the reasons for it, so we've taken you through some of the reasons in the report arguing that we don't have a very, we're not trying very hard one and the approach we're setting even given how much we're trying, isn't a very good approach for doing it, partly because it relies on individuals, they, um, uh, and partly because we're basically erring towards the side of softly, softly, rather than you broke the law and you're going to pay a price for it. Right? We're not aiming to treat it like we would treat benefit fraud or anything like that. Okay. The, um, a counter-argument, so let's go through other, why other people might come to different conclusions, because it's important to engage. So the first would be... Um, you can blame the system, if you like, and you can blame politicians, as I did. They, um, it's the public's fault. They don't care. Uh, they're happy to use the car wash, which is clearly flagrantly breaking a lot of labour market rules. Anyone that spends five minutes in one knows that's what's going on. Um, in lots of cases, also involving abuse of migrant workers in some cases. If the public cared about it, then politicians would change, but the public doesn't care because they'd rather have the cheap stuff. Kate, public to blame or politicians to blame? I don't think you can blame the public for, 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 for a labour market enforcement matter. I think it's, um, I think that's a really easy get out for politicians. Um, I think, you know, there, there's, particularly in the anti-trafficking space, there's, there's been quite a lot of initiatives really saying that the public have to sort of have this vigilante approach of spotting people and reporting them but um you know often that doesn't work out very well for those workers anyway um so i think you know we have just as i don't think that immigration enforcement should do labor market enforcement inspections i don't think the public should do it, them either it you know it is a, a specialized area and you know what we would like to see is an approach that that is sensible um, the, that does result in the law, labour law being enforced for the workers. We, you know, we mentioned remediation. Um, I think 
putting the blame on the public is, is really a, a so distraction. Okay, so that's an anti-vigilante position. It's mm -hmm. very bold of you. The, um, we're definitely not pro that. Okay, let's try another one, Hannah. You can do this for them. So let's do, so someone reads a report and says, okay, I agree, so this is the left critique. So I agree with the diagnosis. The status quo is not a good position. I'm prepared to let the public off because I don't believe in vigilante justice. Um, uh, but it's not about the weeds of the enforcement system and resourcing it properly. In the end, worker power is all that matters. And all you need to do is have a tight labor market and more powerful trade unions. Stop worrying about your enforcement system. Just worry about that. I'm seeing some unionists nodding in the room. They like this version. They're, then you don't have to bother about getting the enforcement system right because we're just going to have really powerful trade unions who can make this current system work. Hannah, why didn't you write that report? <laughs> well, I mean, well, the first obvious point to make is that uh, workers, kind of structurally speaking, work power has declined. Um, Unionisation rates have obviously gone down, but um, we've done other work in, uh, in the past showing that workers just have um, far lower amounts of power than they did in the past. And I mean, it's really clear, kind of again, going back to some of the, the charts on the different groups that are most affected, it's that those workers who are kind of structurally disadvantaged in the labour market um, are both more vulnerable to rights and less uh, rights violations and less able to kind of um, you know, enforce, enforce their own rights. And I think it's, I think that there's a really clear premise that, that the government should be kind of supporting those workers and, and kind of, you know, uh, stepping in to make sure that, um, that the, the, the lack of power that's kind of inherent to this, um, what the patterns that we're seeing here and the, kind of the existence of labor market violations in the first place are addressed. I mean, you know, obviously in an ideal world, we would have more power, but I think even, even, even when the labor market is so tight, we're still seeing high levels of violations and, and so that's kind of at least in the short term it's not going to be a solution yeah and one thing i mean one thing that you, uh, to reinforce that we've got a really tight labor market we have had over the summer it's now starting to loosen but it's still tight in levels terms right now zero hours contract numbers are going up right all of the textbooks said they should not mm. be going up now like they should be right through the 2010s we were all saying to ourselves as soon as the labor market gets tight this big rise in insecure contracts we'll see will start coming down I actually don't know why it's going up. We should definitely do a research project on that. But why are zero-hour contract numbers going up in a very tight labour market is a good question for us all to be asking, the, um, given the power relationships that brings with it. Right, OK, let's then turn to a different subject, which is a bit less abusive to you guys, uh, which is um, structural changes that, that are driving up questions about labour market enforcement, which we do touch on at the beginning of the report. So there's a few questions coming in in this space. I'll give one of them to each of you. So, one for you, which has a particular angle on it for recruitment agencies, but let's elevate it here. This is from the Age Diversity Network, Michael, so you can tell where this is going, right? But which is, we're an older workforce. In another neck of the woods, all those labour market discussions that are popular, as mentioned, in activity, lots of those are focused on older workers. Mm. But let's just think about this in bigger terms. Hannah's report shows you that you, you see more, um, for some older workers, they are particularly likely to be, to be not to have their rights enforced, to see non-compliance. This is age discrimination is the bit that gets talked about, although actually you can see it across the board, but definitely in age discrimination. This is specifically asking about recruitment agencies. Why do you hate older people? I'll leave you to say you don't in a second. Thank you. Uh, but, um, but there's a wider issue, which is, do we think that's going to be, as we have an older workforce, people are kind of, I'm trying to put this in economist terms, may claim that there's a wider dispersion of productivity. They're, as they claim there are, as people do say there are for younger workers, um, are we going to see more of that problem or not? Um, specifically on age discrimination? Specifically on age discrimination. So there, I think there's two parts of this going on. And 
And you've got to call out the biases. Wherever those biases exist, it's got to be called out. I don't necessarily recognise this particular question because, of course, I wouldn't, would I? I, I talk to a wide range of people um, and, they're, and they're desperate for, uh, I will call them candidates, to fill roles and experience people with lots and lots of skills, please, because that's still our major problem despite the cooling off in the, yeah. in the, in the labour market. Um, definite sense that there is a, uh, a growing uh, cohort of people that are taking a different choice in the, in the jobs market. So perhaps linked to your zero hours contract point, um, if you want more flexibility in your working hours for all sorts of reasons, whether that's um, to do with caring responsibilities, whether that's to do with your work-life balance, the fact that people have been speaking about burner over the pandemic, what do they do? They look at different types of employment relationships and different contract types. And that, I think, is a personal choice that's been driven by lots of people. And then what's open to them and available to them is something that we really need to address. Because if the vast majority of us aren't going to be working a traditional nine to five anymore, then the economy uh, and the labour market has to follow suit. So we can't just assume that that's the only way forward. Do and think, but do you think that will drive up threats of non-compliance? So more people on diff less no normal contracts, fewer people in like long-term relationships with their employer? It, it can and it can't. So, so if I take something like uh, one, one of the bits of beautifully uh, EU-derived legislation is working time, right? It's at least 20 years old now. Is it 1999? So older. It's totally out of date. Doesn't, it doesn't feel fit for purpose today. Um, it's not how many of us work. There's so many areas where we need to, we need to get with the programme and get with the times. How is it right that um, a driver is, is confined by that, but you see all of the stuff that's happening in the NHS where they do shift after shift after shift because they opt out? So there's, there's so many nuances um, within this. And, it, and that's what's wrong, is you've got this basis of legislation and it's, and it's applied incorrectly and differently. Um, but we have, to, we have to think about how the labour market has changed. It's changed fundamentally and it's not going to go back to how it was in the 1970s. Well, it's definitely not. Uh, in lots of ways, the, not least the flares. Right, now, Kate, one for you, which is, so migrant workers... I'll give you the extreme version of this, and this mm. is Margaret's more broad. So you've been, mm. in your remarks, focusing on some of the more recent mm. and some of the more extreme end of the market. But just more generally, migrant workers make up a much larger share of the UK workforce mm. today than they did two decades ago. If you look at the London workforce, all of the growth in the London workforce since the 1990s, since 1994, 100% of it mm. is, is migrant. There's been no increase in the UK-born mm. London workforce. I know everybody always says, everyone's moving to London. It's like, well, but not net, they're not. They, um, they're, so it's all, I think, yeah, it's a 25% increase over 25 years, and it's all migrant workforce. That trend looks like it's continuing despite a change in the migration regime in the UK. So we haven't actually seen any fall off in migrant numbers since uh, a change in a migration regime. So let's just assume we're having a, we're, the longer term pattern is a larger share of the workforce from a migrant background. Yeah. Do you think that is inevitably a bigger compliance problem? Or do some countries manage to have that and not have it feeding into compliance issues? I think it depends how you manage it. Um, and like some of the points I was trying to make, I think if people, if you manage it in a way that people can access their rights in practice, you don't have a compliance problem. Do you, any countries actually manage that? That's why, I think that's the hard thing. Or do you always end up with power imbalances in migrant, when you have large migrant workforces? I, I don't know of any countries that I would say are managing it perfectly. But I think... Um, 
I also don't think that's a reason for us just to say, well, we have to accept a two-tier workforce in this country. So I think we, what we can do is look at our immigration um, structures and make sure that when we're developing our post-Brexit um, migration routes for work, that they actively prevent and certainly don't embed exploitation in those structures. That sounds like a good idea. The, um, Alan, why don't you take this one from the Civil Service Alliance? Not, sorry, not the Civil Service, the Civil Society Alliance. Your civil servants should pipe down. Be political <laughs> back there. Right. Um, so this is basically saying, hopefully we can bring it up on the screen in a second, but it basically says, in response to the criticism of the uh, Royal Bill from all sides, the government maintains that the UK has a strong record of word workers' rights. Does it? Here you go. So let's, do, let's try and do this, let's pick this question round. What's the best thing the government's done on workers' rights in the last 13 years? Gosh, <coughs> you've really put me on the spot. So I'll give you, I'll give you a clue. Like, so HMRC definitely resources up in terms of yeah. minimum wage inspections. Okay. Kate likes the naming and shaming regime. Yeah. We like it while well, thinking it doesn't make much difference, but we'll come back to that round in a second. What's the, give us a good thing. Um, you I, can do it. Uh, I, gosh. Um, uh, What's a, what's a good thing that's happened? I'm so used to writing... Scrapped employment tribunal fees? I'm on a roll. I've got loads of these. See, yeah, yeah. So, so yeah, that was done in... Having introduced them. That was done in response to a Supreme Court judgment that, that required them to abolish tribunal fees. I mean, I think, um, I, I think I'm not going to be lured into this. Um, let me say what I think... Um, no pied piping going on. It's just like a right. straight question. Well, <laughs> I, 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 like a politician then, I'll, I'll, I, I'll, I'll answer my own question. Okay. Um, so um, I, I think the most, the most striking thing uh, over the last 13 years has been the progressive restriction of trade unions. So um, I absolutely agree um, that a report that that put um, uh, the kind of future of all of this in the hands of an empowered trade union movement is not a credible prescription. But it is absolutely vital to have a strong and autonomous trade union movement as part of a wider structure where you have public agencies and local authorities and civil society groups and trade unions working in tandem with each other. So one of the big criticisms I think I would have had of the Taylor report, you know, th there were lots Remind of- Remind everyone what the Taylor report is, because some people have a life or are very young. So the Ma Matthew Taylor, uh, um, I think it was called Good Work actually, so that, that, prob that, that irritated me straight off. Um, <laughs> but um, anyway, uh, no, listen, I'm, I'm being flippant. There, there were some very interesting and important um, uh, uh, proposals in the Taylor in the Taylor report, um, and it did engage seriously with the question of enforcement, but it was completely silent on trade unions, worker voice, and collective power. And it's very difficult to look at the current government that introduced the Trade Union Act 2016. Uh, is uh, introducing the minimum service uh, levels bill, uh, is um, uh, making it lawful to use agency workers to break strikes. It's very difficult to take seriously a government that says it's concerned about labour enforcement because 
you are not going to have effective labour enforcement without a trade union movement that's right. able to engage in collective That is action. a cop-out and a half, but, you know, it's a free country. We're very liberal here. They're, right, OK, to wrap us up for this session then, because there's a little bit of great questions we haven't got to about um, other issues. Social care workforce has come up. What are we actually doing to some of these firms? And we do know they've clearly broken the rules. Gig economy, licensing scheme, a few unemployment tribunals. So the last question to each of you is, if there's one thing you can fix, you've got to be short, because this is now eating into caffeine time, and you're going to need coffee, because we've got two more sessions going, OK? Mm. Which is, what's the one thing you want fixed? Because life's about prioritisation with politics is anyway. The, um, so what's the one you want done? Hannah, you are employed here, so you have the <laughs> unfashionable view. You get to go first, basically. Great. Uh, I'm going to enforce your rights again. <laughs> um, I am going to pick um, resourcing. I think that you, you want your inspectors. More... Yeah, putting money into the system helps to pick up the problems in the first place, and, and then they can be dealt with. And I think also would you know signal a kind of government commitment to to sorting mm. this out. Has anybody in the room, in a non-occupational setting, i.e., work, met a labour market inspector? Hello. Yes. Fun, for fun. Well, you bumped into them. Hello, what do you do? Yeah. Okay, anyone else? Any hands up? None of you have met a labour market inspector socially. If that's not because they're not fun. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. All right, okay, we're going to have some. So Hannah wants more of them so you can all meet them at your parties. Kate, what do you want done? I would, um, I would have, have a complete separation between uh, immigration law and employment law. Very good. Other Kate? Um, so, be, if I'm really specific, because there's a lot, it's, uh, the it's the regulation across the whole labour supply chain. So we need umbrellas and all those actors to be regulated and, and that enforced oh. and to be enforced. Very good. Adam? Uncapped punitive damages for calculative corporate wrongdoers. Right, Alan wants a bit of bashing. That'll get us going. Right, that'll get you energised for your coffee session. So the, ne the plan is upstairs. That's where the coffee was before, you get the coffee again. And we're going to be back down here in about 10 minutes when we're going to get on to the solutions. And we thank our panel and thank them for being very well behaved and not giving us all the solutions. <laughs> thank you for listening to this Resolution Foundation event. You can find more episodes and the latest living standards research on the Resolution Foundation website.